Welcome to the Athens Frontline, a podcast presented by the Red and Black that covers topics in health and wellness. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra, here to discuss pandemic-induced eating disorders, questions for UGA CAPS, and how students can receive mental health help with Dr. Christopher Corbett. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Dr. Christopher Corbett is a doctor of psychology and the director of counseling and psychiatric services or CAPS at the University of Georgia. As an experienced higher education administrator, Dr. Corbett has a passion for health, wellness, and inclusion. He was also awarded the Professional Leadership Award by the American College Counseling Association in 2021. Dr. Corbett, how are you doing today? Well, um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I, it's an honor to be talking with you this afternoon. But um, yeah, I think things are going pretty well. Uh, the sun's out, feeling pretty optimistic about spring. My daffodils are starting to come up. So things are things are going pretty good right now. They are. They are. And I was actually surprised because uh, usually my sources don't say, you know, hey, we listen to the Athens Frontline as well. They're too busy or they just haven't heard about it, uh, you know, busy in the hospital and the ICU because a lot of them are, are uh, physicians working during the pandemic and so on. But your email made my day because you said you actually listen to the Athens Frontline. So thank you for being an active listener. We're really uh, happy to have you on. And you can even say you're one of the first listeners as a guest on the Athens Frontline. Well, I feel honored. And if I just might say, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you all are taking the time to, to talk about these topics and to really lend a student voice on there. I think that's one of the primary reasons that I listen in, in my work here at UGA. It's really important for me to be connected to the students all the various ways that I can. And we don't all share our voice in the same places. And right. so I, I'm really appreciative of the fact that this is happening and that you all are doing your thing. Right. And talking about connecting to students, you have a job to really connect to students on a deep level. I mean, being director of CAPS and seeing all sorts of students talking about all sorts of things. So from what you've heard, how has the pandemic affected student mental health in your opinion? Sure. Sure. And so I'll, I'll speak to that, I think, from a different perspective. Is one is that my perspective only goes so far. Um, and so I'll, I, I want to do my best to speak to what we've heard, but I also want to be mindful of time and reflect a little bit what we're seeing in some of the research at this point specific to college mental health. It's definitely a thing um, that all of us have had some impacts uh, from the pandemic. And I think what I've heard in a lot of circles and communities that I've spoken with is it's not really been just one pandemic, right? We've we've kind of had multiple pandemics happening. We've we've had the pandemic specific to COVID, but we've also had a lot of conversations and reckoning around continued social justice and, and racism that happens in this country. We've had a lot of things that have come down. A lot of people are talking about mental health itself as a pandemic. And so, so there's multiple things going on. 
what we've seen with student populations, both here at UGA and kind of on the national level, is increases in anxiety, uh, increases in people reporting feeling lonely, uh, isolated, disconnected from each other, from their peers, from their family in some cases. Um, just, you know, uh, um, increases in trauma, which was already something that a number of students report. And that is just touching the, the tip because there's a, a, a huge, I mean, there's so many different impacts and it really depends on each person's personal circumstances. You know, for some, if they didn't find the college environment ideal for them, spending some time at home was actually helpful. For some that don't like the college uh, classroom environment, some they found the online environment to be helpful. So it hasn't been all negative, but I think it's important to note that it's impacted every single one of us in various ways. And the other only thing I would note is that we know that it's disproportionately impacted people. And so a person's socioeconomic status, their race, cultural background, all of these things are particularly meaningful as it relates to the effects of the pandemic because many people were already deal, dealing with and living through disproportionate situations and the pandemic has just magnified those for, for many people. Right. And uh, we've had an episode and a conversation about that, the disproportionate effect. I have been one of those students who did uh, feel like it was better for me to stay at home and I was able to learn a lot about myself what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, at first it was horrible. Um, but eventually it helped me grow a lot and realize things that I, you know, and grow in ways that I would probably never have had the opportunity to, or maybe been later than, than the pandemic, everything kind of seemed to slow down at the same time, but speed up at the same time as well. Um, Hasn't it been just so weird in the way that that's happened? Yeah. It has. It has. Now I want to hone in specifically towards an issue that a lot of students have been facing, not just during the pandemic, but pre-pandemic as well. But there have been new cases caused by the pandemic, experiences during the pandemic as well about eating disorders. So from the students that have come into CAPS, the students that you've talked to, what are eating disorders, first of all, in your expertise? And then how has a pandemic had an effect on these students or just individuals in general throughout the world? Yeah, so, you know, eating disorders is, um, I'm, I'm going to talk to it from a, specifically from a clinical perspective. And I, and I say that because that is also a, a term that's used in common conversation with a lot of people that isn't necessarily reaching that clinical kind of threshold. In the same way that we talk about depression and anxiety, you know, it's both a clinical word and it's also used in a non-clinical space. So, and I will say that I'm just one perspective and there's an incredible team here at CAPS uh, and many of them highly trained in, in working with these uh, kinds of concerns that a student might have and, and these needs. And so, we'll, but we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later, I think. So in general, eating disorders are, they're a, a rather complex set of uh, experiences that someone is living with. It often is multifaceted in the sense that it impacts multiple areas of their life. The 
the reason for those for that diagnosis for lack of a better way to say it existing also is connected to multiple things and it's something that we're still even today learning a lot more about but to state the obvious it has a lot to do with how a person eats and how they engage with food and nutrition and it is connected to a person's uh, well-being on multiple levels both physiological biological uh, psychological, uh, socially, there's a, there's a lot of dynamic there too. It's, it's, um, rather complex to say the least. It really is. Cause I know I had to not only prepare for this episode, but in general have been looking up these terms in a lot, like a lot, and there's all sorts of eating disorders that people struggle with. So going off of that, essentially, what are some of these eating disorders that you have seen and then what has CAPS been doing to help these individuals who are struggling with them? Yeah, so, I mean, I can give you some of the, the labels that are typically used with it from a diagnostic perspective. And you'll, so in, in our world, in our clinical space, uh, there's anorexia nervosa as an example. Uh, there's bulimia there's binge eating, there's, there's a range of different ones. And that's not all, that's just some of the ones that are a little bit more common and they impact a person differently. I think it's important to note that just because a person might have a diagnosis, uh, that it doesn't mean that their experience is the same. Uh, and it doesn't mean that their treatment and, and the support that they would receive is going to receive is going to be exactly the same either. You know, it's it's no surprise that our culture puts a lot of emphasis on what a person looks like. And uh, there's a lot of expectations uh, and biases uh, around what we look like, what we eat, how we eat. And, you know, all of this stuff can feed into and impact us. And so I, I mentioned that just as to, to note that while there is diagnostic criteria and, and those kinds of labels, there's also a lot of us that are, don't reach that level that still, you know, run into dynamics around eating behaviors and that are healthy or not so healthy for us. What would you say essentially causes a lot of people to struggle with this, especially the ones that are my age, you know, students at the University of Georgia? I mean, back then we used to say, you know, all these actresses and these models, they're putting up these expectations and young girls are looking at them, young guys are looking at them and saying, I want to look like that. But is that still the case during the pandemic and post pandemic? Or is it caused by other mental health you know, issues like depression, anxiety, which causes your appetite to either decrease or increase, just affects people different ways. What do you think? Well, I, I think that the answer is all of those things, honestly. There are just, it really depends on, uh, on a person's own situation and, and what's going on for them. And any good uh, support or treatment that someone's going to seek is going to focus on what is that individual story? What is that that is there, you know, contributed to them living the way that they do? Having said that, there are some things that we know in general that um, can influence whether or not someone uh, is experiencing 
something like an eating disorder or something that would be diagnosed with one. And that is higher rates of anxiety. It can be being in and around an environment that puts more emphasis on perfection, uh, more emphasis on the way that someone would look. You know, examples of this are athletes. We see higher rates of eating concerns and, and unhealthy eating behaviors uh, in athletes. But, you know, that, to your point, can also happen in other areas like fashion. However, the vast majority of things that are going on, we don't see. And so, you know, depending on the research that you look at, they'll, they would say that there's about 20 million women in the U.S. that would have a possibility of of having being diagnosed with an eating disorder. And there's about 10 million men that have the possibility of being diagnosed with an eating disorder. Other things that, again, come into play are issues around body image and a person's connection to how they look. History, of course, history of dieting uh, is going to play in, into effect there. And then there could also be biological reasons that could impact it as well. There really is so many things. It's hard to talk through uh, in the brief time that we have together uh, this afternoon. But, you know, I, I think the other thing I'll mention is that culture is a huge part of it as well. And then if a person has any traumatic history, and so we see a lot of links with trauma, we see a lot of links with bullying uh, and, and things like that as well. And that happens to everyone. And so it's, it's really something that the possibility of having an eating disorder does not discriminate against between people, any identity, any gender, any age, any background, any race, uh, it's possible for anyone. You're right. These disorders definitely don't discriminate. But I do think culturally as a society, we're really promoting self-love a lot more and the fact that how we look like and we should be happy with the way we look like in comparison to looking at maybe five, 10 years ago, right? I do feel like my generation, and especially the generations after me, are more, as students would say, woke. Um, and they, they understand that people are all sorts of different shapes and sizes and colors, and we should just love each other and love ourselves. Do you think these issues, these eating disorder issues, are decreasing as this narrative and these beliefs culturally are spreading? Or do you think that we'll see an uprise eventually once people are more out there after this pandemic? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give you a definitive answer on that because it's a complicated thing. Uh, I, I will tell you that as we reduce stigma, it creates a space where it's more okay to talk about it. And so that means that we have more awareness about how various things are impacting both each other on an individual level, but we're also able to get a better sense of it on the population level. And so what we know at this point, as far as numbers around eating disorders specifically, is because those have been the people that have been willing to talk about it and the people that have been willing to seek help. As we reduce stigma and generationally, to your point, are more willing to have conversations about it, uh, I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that impacts the rates. If that is the case, I wouldn't say that that means that we're having increased unhealthy behavior. I would say that we're creating an environment where it's more okay to talk about it. 
Uh, and so, and then for we're seeing some of that. With regards to the last couple of years, what we've seen statistically is that there has been some increased um, concerns related to eating behaviors, unhealthy eating behaviors, and potential for diagnostics around eating disorders. And I would say that that's highly influenced by the pandemic and the stress of the pandemic uh, and the rates of increased anxiety, because we know all of that feeds into the potential of uh, a person's eating behaviors. I will say the, the other thing that's impacted that is, you know, what has been a person's access during the pandemic to food and nutrition? You know, for some people, their home environment is incredibly healthy around food and body image and nutrition. And for some people, that's, it's the exact opposite. And so in the cases that we're maybe not have not been able to control our own environment as much, uh, that's definitely also played a factor into what we're seeing more recently. To your point, I hope we see improvements. I think that's what we all want to see. And having conversations like this. For sure. Now, kind of changing gears here, and I've heard from a lot of students, and I think the Red and Black also wrote a piece about trying to access CAPS but the appointments are full or they feel like CAPS didn't help them as much. And there's all sorts of complaints, but I feel like anytime there is anything, there's always pros and cons and different people have different opinions. Now, speaking as the director of CAPS, you know, straightforwardly, for those who are trying to seek help and they are trying to ask CAPS for help, whether it be talking to someone or, you know, medication, whatever it may be, and they feel like there aren't any appointments available or they don't feel comfortable coming to CAPS, what is CAPS doing to make all these issues, essentially they're fixing them or, or better? What are these specific actions that you've kind of laid out as director or your staff has laid out? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a fair question. And I know that there have been some students who've experiences have, with CAPS have not been what they expected or wanted them to be. Uh, I've been here, the director at CAPS now for just over a year. So I started in January of 2020. Uh, and one of the first priorities for me was to really get a full sense of CAPS and all the things that it does. Uh, and also what students experience with those things and see where those things matched up really well um, and, and where they didn't. And, and in the places that they didn't, we need to assess and evaluate how we can make changes on some of those things. And, and so I will say, you know, it's a work in progress. And I'm appreciative of any time a student gives us feedback. We like to hear positive, of course, everyone does as human beings, we like that. But it's also important to hear the other stuff, those that aren't as positive. And so we've listened really hard and we're working on things. I'm happy to share with you a, a couple of very specific things that we've done. One is, and, and we've focused, I will say that we have tried to focus on removing any barriers uh, that we knew were in place that were particularly disproportionately impacted students. So if we had marginalized groups or if we had students that you know identified as minorities or just things like that that we knew were either in the past or currently less likely to reach out, we really wanted to, to make the experience as equitable as possible for all UGA students. 
One example of that is we have eliminated uh, almost all costs for the vast majority of students. So we have worked to um, ensure that a student wouldn't have any out-of-pocket costs uh, as long as they've paid the health fee and, and have health insurance. Now, we also know that that doesn't capture all students. And so for those students that don't have access to either one of those, there's availability for grants and, and other funding uh, through some partners on campus uh, who can help cover those costs. We don't want cost to be a reason that, a, that someone wouldn't reach out for support. We've also worked really hard uh, to expand services. And, and so one way that we've done that is that we have uh, started this last year an after hours uh, counseling line so that students can call and talk directly to a counselor. In the past, that was an option they would have to go through uh, the police department who are incredibly good at what they do, but some people don't like having to make a second call. And so we wanted to make that as easy as possible for students to access. And so that's one example. And then some other things is we've worked, we've had great support from the university in being able to offer some additional resources. Um, and so, I hope most students out there have heard of Christie Campus Health, they've heard of Tau, they've heard a number of other options, Headspace, there's a number of really good things out there that we've done to provide resources and access for students in those cases when maybe they couldn't get into CAPS as quickly as they wanted or, or something like that. And for those who couldn't get into CAPS as quickly as they wanted, what is essentially going on behind the scenes in CAPS? that is causing these students who have paid their fees, you know, and that essentially, you know, are expecting CAPS to help them, expecting to get an appointment. From your point of view, giving you a platform, what is actually happening behind these scenes when you're saying we don't have appointments available or anything like that? Yeah. So important to note is that it's not, we don't look at from the, as a, from the perspective of not having appointments available. It, it, is more, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It, it's more about when the appointment would be available. And so where I think there is the greatest amount of feedback, which I understand from students is that an appointment wasn't as available as quickly as they were hoping to see someone. And so it, it all comes down to a little bit of a matter of, of economics in the sense of supply and demand. So we have multiple ways to get into CAPS and to get support here. Um, one thing I think that's often missed is that we have walk-in services for any student that finds himself uh, in an urgent uh, or emergent situation. That does not require an appointment. Call Any student can call in, they can walk in. Um, we have a clinician reserved every single day every hour of the day that we're open to see a student if, when they're in that situation. It's incredibly important, both for me as a clinician myself and as the director of CAPS, the students know that we're available. Where we can run into some difficulty with scheduling semtimes is for those non-emergent, you know, ongoing 
appointments um, where students are hoping to see someone uh, sooner uh, than we have availability on sometimes. That is most impacted by the demand. And, and we have a lot of demand, which you know, ultimately we like because we're here to serve students. And so it's good that they're reaching out. It, it is, um, we, we don't like students having to wait too long. Um, and sometimes um, that just, sometimes that is longer than we like it to be. Uh, and so that's where we're always evaluating uh, our system and how it works to try to make, to reduce barriers of access as much as possible. I will say, uh, just note really quick that when we're not able to see someone as quickly as they'd like or as quickly as we would like, and or if they have a need that is more specific to the expertise that we have in CAPS, then we work, we work really closely with them uh, and to connect them to resources in the community. And you know, I know that that's maybe not the first choice for some people, um, but there really is a lot of really good clinicians in the community. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's the best option for a student, depending on what their needs are. That makes sense. You know, in our first episode, we called it Does Therapy Work? And one of the points that was brought up was that it's not a sense of, you know, demand. We've got people who need help. We've got people who are even accepting that they need to talk to someone, but it's just not having enough therapists. But I'm Glad to hear, and I don't know if a lot of students know about this, that you do have a walk-in, uh, you know, system available that that students, staff can utilize um, and that you will tend to them. I also see where students are coming from because, I mean, if we could, you know, if, if people could be warned that they're going to have a panic attack or be warned that they're going to have a depressive episode, then they'd handle it themselves, but they don't know. And that's why they seek help all of a sudden and they want that help early. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Corbett. I really, really appreciate you uh, coming here. I know there were a lot of questions. A lot of students have had questions and um, you can't assume anything until you give a platform for the people who are working hard um, and trying to address a lot of these things. My last question is, because there is a lot of supply, uh, a lot of demand and not that much supply, does UHC look into hiring more therapists or more help? Or is it something that's just, all right, this year we have these many students at the university, we can tend to them here um, with these many therapists. Is it like a constant talk or is there just not that much talk? This is all that we can afford. Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And it's an important question. Uh, I would tell you that it's something that we're constantly evaluating. We're always looking at those things. And, you know, UGA is a huge place. You know, it's incredible. We went over 40,000 students this last year. Uh, it's such a, a vibrant community. There's so many incredible things happening. And that also means that there's a lot of students to support. And so it's always something that we're looking at and evaluating with regards to staffing levels. And it's ultimately a, a matter of conversations and, and decisions that we make, not just here within the UHC, but within university leadership. And I would say we have uh, great support in looking at those things uh, and evaluating those. You know, we can't always necessarily make the changes as quickly as, we, as we'd like, because that's just the nature of how things work. But I can tell you that there is incredible support on the part of the leaders of the university. Uh, and we want to as help as many students as we can with, with the resources that we have. Uh, I don't, 
don't know how much students are tracking this too, but there's again a lot that the university has done here recently related to student well-being and mental health. And so I would encourage all of your listeners to go and, and check out wellbeing.uga.edu. There's a lot of really helpful uh, resources and information out there. Um, and I will lastly say that for anybody that wants to share any feedback, has any ideas, I'm all ears. I want to hear it. Uh, I want to hear what the students have to say. We want, we are here to help, whether that's services or type of services or uh, number of counselors, um, whatever that is, we want to you know, we're here to do everything that we can. Uh, if it wasn't for you all, we wouldn't be here. Um, and so it's all our team effort to work together and, and help each other be the best students that we can be and help you all get graduated and I guess some fantastic jobs. All right. Thank you so much for coming again. And I hope you have a great day for our listeners. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Athens Frontline podcast presented by The Red and Black. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra. Make sure you tune back in next week for our next episode. Until then, check us out on social media at Red and Black. Have a healthy and safe rest of your week.